As you're flipping to Ephesians chapter 1, I want to uh, show you a picture of a couple that I think might have lived in Ephesus um, if they were alive in Bible times. Um, I had to search really long and hard to find a good picture of this uh, super photogenic couple. And when I say that, I mean I typed their names into Google and there were multiple pages of picture-perfect images of Chip and Joanna Gaines. Um, they're, they're like like the untouchables in our society right now. I don't know. It's crazy. Um, but, but I think they might have lived in Ephesus. Um, and, and I say that because it's really important for us as we're getting ready to jump into this book of Ephesians to understand who this letter was written to. All right, so, so Paul wrote this letter. Um, the first few verses say this. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So why do I think Chip and Joanna might have lived in Ephesus? Well, um, as you begin to look at some of the ancient ruins, some of the things that they see where the city of Ephesus would have been, um, these people had homes that were incredibly luxurious um, for their time. They had kitchens, they had bathrooms, they had bedrooms that were large and spacious and like super decked out. And um, the architecture was just incredible for that day and age. They were a port city. Uh, they, which means they were like a hub of culture. They, I mean, Ephesus had it going on. HGTV, like they would have made their hub in Ephesus, okay? This was the place to be. And um, they even had this, this outdoor theater that held 25,000 people. Can you imagine sitting in the open air in a, in a theater with 25,000 people and, and being together with a group of people and, and like being tuned into one thing? Like it's just an incredible city, right? Like this was the place to be. So, so what in the world could Paul be writing a letter to the people of Ephesus about? What, what would he want to say? What would God want to say through Paul to a group of people that were so perfect? What would God want to say to a Chip and Joanna Gaines that seemed to have everything together? What would he want to say? And I think, I think the, the thing that we see in Scripture and the thing that, that, that Paul might have been driving to is this, that knowledge... Knowledge pushes us towards isolation. I'm not saying knowledge is a bad thing. I love knowledge. I'm, I'm, I'm in school, right? Like knowledge is good, but, but knowledge also pushes us towards isolation. Think for a minute, uh, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, and if you don't, it's okay. But Adam and Eve, they were living in this perfect state, perfect relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. Everything was great, and they were told, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they eat of that tree, and all of a sudden, they know. They know. And the next thing they do is they, they hide. They isolate themselves. They, they attempt to, to separate themselves from God. Knowledge tends to push us towards isolation. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 um, says this, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Whenever I read this verse, anytime I read this verse, I think of one of the coolest animals in God's kingdom, the pufferfish. The pufferfish. You know, um, uh, here's another interesting Google image search for you. Um, so you do that, and anytime you see a picture of a pufferfish puffed up, 
they're the only animal in the picture. Right? Because when a puffer fish puffs up, what are they trying to do? They're trying to scare people off, right? And, and so here we have this idea, right? Like, let's connect the dots a little bit. Knowledge puffs up. When we begin to know more, when we, when we learn something new, when we feel like we've gained knowledge, it puffs us up, and that knowledge pushes us towards isolation. In a way, it, it slowly says, I don't need your help. I don't need anything else. I've got what I need. I've got the knowledge, and knowledge is power. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Let's, let's make it personal for, for just a minute, right? You say, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm, I'm full of love. I love people. Maybe these phrases have crossed your mind. Maybe they've even come out your mouth once or twice. You, you think or you say something like, well, I know what's best. I know what's best for my kids. That teacher better not tell me what she thinks is best for my kid because I know what's best for my kid. Or that hovering mom on Facebook makes a comment and you're like, she don't know my kids. I know my kids. But maybe it's not even about your kids. Maybe it's just straight up about you, right? I know what's best for me. Don't you try and tell me what to do with my life. Don't you tell me who I can and can't hang out with. Don't you tell me what's right or what's wrong for me. I know I know what's best for me. In all those things, puffer fish, right? Isolation. Nobody wants to be around people that, that say those things or think those things or act that way. Um, other phrases, uh, you, you have a little, little conflict with somebody, and then you say, well, they don't know what I know. They don't know what I know, and if they knew what I knew, they'd see it my way, Right? Stuff like that happens. It goes through our head. Pufferfish, isolation. Or, or maybe, maybe you were looking back in our, our past and we're thinking about past relationships. We're thinking about uh, things gone by. And, and we say, well, now that I know, now that I know who that person really was, now that I know who my ex really was, now that I know what my friend really thought about me, Pufferfish, isolation. Knowledge pushes us towards isolation. And so Paul's message here about unity in the book of Ephesians to the people of Ephesians is saying, listen, be careful, guys. I know right now you're chipping Joanna Gaines and you got everything going for you. You're the port city. Your life is good. You know Jesus. You're faithful. You're set apart. You're holy. But be careful because that knowledge has a chance to push you towards isolation. Isolation leads to division. What's divided in your life? What is it that you think you know best about? Here's the good news. Jesus wants to unite us. He wants to bring each of us individually and and then all of us collectively into a united state. And the truth of the gospel that we're going to see here in Ephesians 1 is this. You can't untie what Jesus unites. You can't untie what Jesus unites. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you cannot untie what Jesus unites. I'm excited. (laughs) All right. God chose you. God chose you. Yes, you. He chose you in Jesus to come under Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He's got you all knotted up. He is tying you to himself, and you can't untie that. 
you can't untie what Jesus unites. Read with me, beginning in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 8. It says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace that he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. If you don't get anything else today, please hear this. The thought of you, the very thought of you existing, the thought of of you being someone who is loved by God, that existed in God before he created anything else in this incredible world. God had thought of you before he created the world. Would you just sit in that for a moment? Before anything that you've experienced, the greatness of, of, of this world, God thought about you. And way back then, in that moment, he decided right then and there, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to adopt that person that isn't even formed, that hasn't even been thought about. I'm going to bring that person into my family. That's an incredible thought, guys. That's an incredible thought. Doug Williams uh, is on staff at the Kentucky Baptist Convention. He, uh, he has a boss named Eric Allen, and uh, Eric Allen is my father-in-law. So Doug and I, we've got something in common. Eric Allen is our boss. Um, so just kidding. He's a great father-in-law. But Doug and his wife, Kathy, um, they began the process of adopting a little girl from Ethiopia um, about five years ago, about five years ago. And, um, I, yeah, I, I just lost everyone's attention. There it is. She's incredibly cute, right? Um, she's incredibly cute. And um, Doug and Kathy, they found out that they were going to get Holly, but, but then there was this long process, a four-and-a-half-year process to get her. And she finally got to come home um, right, right around the end of last year. And it was really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know Doug when they began the process, but I've known him since. And it was interesting, even on social media, special days would come up, holidays would come around, uh, celebrations would, would arise, and he would, he would make these posts that just struck a chord in me. Because what he would do is he would talk about their longing for their family to be complete. He would talk about their longing for Holly to be a part of of what was going on as they celebrated on that day here in America, in Kentucky. And as I think back on those posts, and as I think about what we read here in Ephesians 1, I realize that that Doug had to wait four and a half years. Doug and his family had to wait four and a half years to bring this incredible child into their family. But God chose you and loved you and decided in advance to adopt you before he ever made the world. And he has been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the day that you would say, yes, God, 
I want to be in your family. The long-suffering, the waiting that God has, is doing, maybe if you, if you don't haven't believed in his son Jesus yet to, to be adopted into his family, God is waiting and yearning to bring you into his family just as Doug was, was waiting and longing and yearning to bring Holly into theirs. That's incredible. It's incredible. A couple weeks ago, Doug posted um, one of the sweetest videos I've ever seen on Facebook. I couldn't figure out how to steal it off of Facebook, so I just didn't. But um, you, you pull this video up, and Holly is sitting in a rocking chair holding her baby doll, and she's rocking back and forth, and she's like, Jesus loves me, yes, no. And the post just said, she's doing that because when she's scared and she can't go to sleep, that's what her mom does for her. Someone who had no clue, no, no, no recollection of the name of Jesus, now singing, Jesus loves me, this little baby doll. She's got a long way to go, right? But it's an incredible picture of the love that God has for us and how that love just permeates through all of life and how God has, has learned, yearned and longed for you to be a part of his family. You see, Jesus Christ put a down payment on your adoption. He put a down payment on your adoption knowing that he wasn't even going to get to see a return on that investment for a long, long time. A couple thousand years ago, Christ is dying on a cross to pay for your sins, to pay for you to be a part of his family. And he's waiting on you to say yes. He's waiting on all the paperwork to come through. Praise God because of that. You can't untie what Jesus unites. He's been working in your life, whether you know it or not. Continue reading with me. Ephesians 1.9 God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God has a plan. That's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting that God has a plan. It's, it's comforting to know that God has a plan. And so we're like, God, what's the plan? God, can you let us in? And, and God looks back and says, everyone submit to my son, Jesus Christ. And you're like, really? You're such a homer, God. You want everybody to, to do what your son says? I just wanted to be united. I just wanted unity to happen. I just wanted good things to happen in my life. I didn't want to have to give up my authority. I didn't want to have to say that somebody else might know what's best for my life and it's not me. I didn't want to have to come under anybody. I wanted to have a good life and be in charge. God, that's the plan? Come under the authority of Christ? Well, then I'm out. God says, well, let me remind you of this little verse in Romans, this verse that I spoke through Paul. It says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. He says, you guys are misquoting this all the time. You, you quote it and you're like, I should have a good life because God wants me to have a good life, which is true, but for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. 
God says, listen, believe it or not, I've got this plan. I'm working the plan, and I make everything work out according to that plan. And that plan is that you would give up control of your own life and come under the authority of Jesus Christ. Because, you see, this plan includes people hundreds of years before Jesus uh, coming to earth. They're, they're speaking about him in detail. People were preparing the way for Christ before he ever came. And these people weren't saints. In fact, they were sinners. They were prostitutes. They were liars. They were people who were worried too much and took matters into their own hands. And yet, Jesus came and lived a perfect life and paid for your sin. God says, listen, I've got a plan. I'm working the plan. You can either choose to come under that plan to be united in Christ or not. That's really the, the, the crux, the question of the gospel. Will you submit to God's plan for your life? Or do you think that you know a better one? That's a temptation, right? I know what's best for me. What if Christ knows what's best for you? You can't untie what Jesus unites, and he wants to unite you with the Holy Spirit. Read with me in verse 12 and following. It says, God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. You see, Jesus was God with us. God with us. And when Jesus left this earth, he sent the Holy Spirit to be God in us. Scripture affirms that God is, is one God in three parts. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who makes his home inside of, of believers today. Now, Paul uses this, this example here in this text because this is what they were dealing with, Jews and Gentiles. That was the big division, right? You, you could fill in lots of things for what that division looks like in our current context. It could be black and white. It could be Republican and Democrat. Could be Calvinist and non-Calvinist. Could be whatever, right? Fill in the blank. So Paul uses this example from their context, Jews and Gentiles. And, and from his perspective, Jews and Gentiles could not be more different. They had different skin complexions, different values. They, they expressed their religion differently. They had a different expression of how community happened. Everything was different. But Paul uses this example to show the power of unity in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Because what Paul is saying is for all those things that are different, you all are going to find commonality, you're going to find unity, you're going to find togetherness in the Spirit. You will recognize one another as true brothers and sisters in Christ because of your unity in the Spirit. We say, what, what does that look like? How, how does that happen? We read... Fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when those things are happening in two people, a unity begins to happen. Now, for all that can be said about the Holy Spirit, for all that can be said about the different kinds of gifts that the Holy Spirit might give or, or whatever, the greatest gift I believe that He gives to us is unity expressed through love for one another. It is a God-given miracle when we see two people who are radically different. Maybe they're radically different theologically, racially, morally, practically, economically, politically. 
But it is a God-given miracle when we see two people who are radically different brought together by and through the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. When the fruits of the Spirit are reigning more than their opinions or their preferences. There is no greater testimony of God's power. There is no greater miracle than when that happens. And if today, if today you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and your Lord and Savior, then Jesus Christ himself has actually prayed for you to experience the miracle of unity through the Spirit. Jesus has prayed for you. Turn with me to John 17, if you've got your Bible or your phone. This is, this is, this is good. John 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus, let me give you some context. Jesus is praying, this whole chapter is Jesus praying with his disciples right before he's going to go and be betrayed and arrested and sent to the cross. He's praying. He says this, I'm praying not only for these disciples, the ones in the room, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Do you believe? If you do, Jesus is praying for you. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love I think it's pretty clear that Jesus wants us to be united. And we are only united when we are under his authority. A friend of mine, youth minister, he calls me this week and he was like, hey, I need to know if I did the right thing. I said, well, you might not be calling the right guy, but what do you got? He said, this other youth minister down the street different denomination, he calls me and he said, the Lord has really been laying on my heart that uh, our churches should be working together more. And so I really want us to do something together. He said, I was excited. I thought that was a good thing. And he said, so I told him that. I was like, I'm excited. That sounds awesome. He said, Blake, literally the very next words out of his mouth were, I want to do something together as long as... (laughs) And then he went down like three or four, like, super specific doctrines and things that he wanted to, like boxes that he wanted to check before they could work together on anything. I want to tell these stories throughout this series because I know that it's ironic that the church continues to talk about unity and we struggle to be unified, right? Like that's important for us to embrace and realize. But this story, more than that, illustrates this point, that the biggest barrier to unity is often you. You are the biggest barrier to unity. What I mean by that is, is just like this guy, we want unity. We long for unity. We long to be one as, as Christ and God are one. We long for that. It's, it's hardwired into our DNA. And yet we so struggle to lay down our authority so that we can experience that kind of unity. We so struggle in our marriage to give up authority to our spouse so that we might be one. We so struggle within our family units, within our, within our jobs, within our, our schools. We so struggle to lay down our own lives so that we might see unity arising under the authority of Christ. 
We so struggle with this. You are almost always the biggest barrier to unity. And Paul knew that too. And that's why as he finishes Ephesians 1, he moves into praying for the Ephesians. He prays for them. And his prayer reveals three concerns that he has as they strive to be a united state with Christ. And and I believe that those three concerns are still very real and relevant for us today. So read with me real quickly this prayer, and then we're going to go really quickly through those three concerns, and then we'll be done. Verse 15, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. You see, the things that Paul prays for the Ephesians are the things that he is concerned might become weak points, that might become barriers to unity. So I see three of them. First is this. You'd rather know facts about God than know God. You'd rather know facts about God than know God. I liken this to when you're sitting on the couch with your spouse at like 9 o'clock at night and you start talking about somebody and you're like, did that person ever have their baby? Do they get married? Are they still together? And instead of calling that person, or instead of like trying to have an actual conversation with that person, what do you do? Let me Facebook them. <laughs> right? I got to go stalk this person on Facebook. It doesn't matter how many trails of people I got to go through to find out the truth. I'm going to find out on social media what's true in this person's life. And we do that because what we, what we really want to know about that person is just the facts. We don't want to know that person. We just want to know the facts about that person. And that's scary because we've started doing that to God. We find ourselves in a, a sticky point in life. We, we're, how did I get here, God? Probably because you weren't in relationship with God. And you get to that sticky point, and you're like, I'll just Google up, uh, like, God, what should I do in this situation? I just want to know the facts about God. I don't want to know God. It's a big barrier to unity. It's a huge barrier to unity because you're not under the authority of God or of Christ in that situation. You don't want to know God. You just want to know the facts about God. You just want to prove that he's real to you and to to others around you. Second is this. You'd rather shed light on someone else than let light flood your heart. You'd rather shed light on someone else than let light flood your heart. I love what Paul writes in his prayer in verse 18. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his only people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I'm like, yes, Father, flood my heart with light, except for that one dark corner that I don't want to talk about ever. Right? And when we realize we have those dark corners that we don't like to talk about, that make us uncomfortable, I'm not saying that we have to talk about them with other people. But here's what happens. When we realize we have those dark corners, we begin to point out the things that we don't like about other people to protect that dark corner. We'd rather shed light on who they are than let the the light of Christ shine deeply through us. I 
I remember learning very early on in grade school that when you point a finger at somebody, there's three pointing back at you, right? At least one person learned that with me. <laughs> there might be more. I don't know. But when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at you. And then, you know, like in grade school, you start pointing like this. <laughs> this week, just as a way of, of wrestling with this, right? When you catch yourself beginning to point the finger at somebody, maybe you're, maybe you're posting an article that's critical of somebody who thinks a certain way. Maybe you're actually talking to somebody about not liking the way that somebody handles something. Maybe you're really straight up gossiping and calling out somebody. But when you find yourself wanting to shed light on somebody else's problems, I want to ask and pray with you that you would stop and think about what are the three fingers that are pointing back at me right now? Maybe you need to write those down. Maybe you need to just stop and confess those in the moment. Because one of the biggest barriers to unity, if it's you, is that you're, you're trying to shed light on everybody else's sin instead of letting the light of Christ flood your heart. All right, you'd rather know facts about God than know God. You'd rather shed light on someone else than let light flood your heart. And last but not least, you'd rather power through than believe in God's power. As overachieving success-driven, power-driven, hungry Americans. We would much rather say that we overcame our obstacles than say that God has worked in and through us. Paul's prayer at the end is just incredibly powerful. I also pray that you understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. That power is for us. This same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand. That power lives in us. If you need something tangible in this one, Jeremy Camp wrote a song. I'm just going to read the chorus. And, and if, if you're a song person, like go YouTube it and like let this be your song this week. It just says the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The same power that commands the dead to wake. It lives in us. It lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks, the same power that can calm a raging sea, it lives in us. So when you hit a wall, when you hit a dead end, when you're struggling to overcome this week, stop trying to beat it with your own power. Believe in the power of Christ in you. So here's what you need to do. Here's how we are going to be united in Christ together this week. Here's how we're going to battle back against the temptation to, to say, I know, and, and, and unity will eventually happen. This week, I want to invite you, challenge you to join Jesus in praying through John 17. There's a whole chapter of Jesus' prayers that lead up to his wanting his church to be unified, seeking to be united with Christ's heart for the church. So I want you to get your phones out right now. Get your phones out. You have permission in church to get your phones out. <clears throat> Each day this week, there's going to be a text that comes out. It's also going to be on Twitter if you follow us on Twitter, at Love Shelbyville. And it's just going to be a simple one-line prayer and a link to, to the passage of Scripture in John 17 where, where Jesus addresses this, right? And here's the thing. All these prayers are going to be about you. They're going to be asking God, God, help me, show me how I'm being a barrier to unity today, all right? So if you will, send a text to 81010. Put that in the two box, 81010. 
and then in the, the text, you put the, the text at sign, United Pray, U-N-I-T-E-D, Pray, P-R-A-Y, all one word. Send a text to 81010 at United Pray. First one will come out this afternoon. My watch will go crazy as people signed up for that. All right. As we pray together, as we pray together and put ourselves in that position of allowing God to speak into our lives, we are coming under the authority of Christ. It's a slow process sometimes, but he wants us to do that. And as we do that, unity can happen. But here's the thing. This is the last it. We will never see unity within the church until we embrace unity with Christ. We will never see unity within the church until each of us personally begin to embrace unity with Christ. Unity amongst churches starts with the church people actually being united with Christ. Because as much as we would like to believe that people in here uh, have things figured out with Christ and they're living a life and they're submitted to him, it's not true. We're all sinners. Chosen and saved by Jesus Christ. So as the band comes today, I want you to wrestle with the question that I ask in the middle. Will you submit to God's plan for your life, or do you think you know a better one? Will you submit to God's plan for your life, or do you think you know a better one? And maybe you've been in church your whole life, and you, you, thought, you thought you had this church thing figured out. But maybe you've never actually given control of your life over to Jesus. He's waiting on you to come and accept his invitation to be a part of his family. If you're wrestling with whether or not you've believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, there's going to be a team of people in the back corner over here that want to pray with you, that want to just hear your story, listen to you, and help you figure out what's next. If you've believed and trusted in him, then we invite you to come and partake in the Lord's Supper. You can grab a piece of the the gluten-free, all-the-freeze bread that has very little taste and is very crumbly. It's okay. It's lighthearted right there. You can take a piece of that bread and dip it in the juice as we remember Christ's body and Christ's blood that was shed for you to pay for your adoption into the family of God. We also encourage you who are believers to express your giving, your generosity in the cans in the back. Whatever it is, I want you to meditate and think about the fact that God loved you and chose you and chose to adopt you before he ever started creating the rest of this world. I want you to respond to that. How are you going to respond to that? That the creator God loved you before he made anything else. Will you submit to his plan for your life or do you think you know a better one? Let's respond now.